Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I speak to the brilliant David Broder about the rise of Italian fascism. We speak about the recent elections in which the Italian far-right party, the Brothers of Italy, came to power. Um, And we talk a little bit more about uh, David's longer-term analysis of the rise of Italian fascism, which he analyzes in his book that will be out next year, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. As always, thank you very much to our brilliant patrons who make the show possible. Please do consider becoming a patron if you can. The link is below. It's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. And if you want to support the show in another way, please consider sharing this episode on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now here's a quick word from our sponsors. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism by Vijay Prashad. In this book of interviews with international solidarity organiser Frank Barat, renowned author and activist Vijay Prashad shows that the path towards hope and liberation lies in closely looking at myriad undercovered struggles being waged all over the world by workers in countries like India, Kenya, Peru, Tunisia and Argentina. Find Struggle Makes Us Human at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20, respectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I am joined by David Broder, and we will be discussing recent events in Italy. How are you doing today, David? Very good, thanks. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. So let's just start by having a bit of a chat about what the results actually were. Um, How did the Brothers of Italy come out on top? How did other parties do? What were some of the contingent factors that led up to this? So we can talk about the longer term conditions for the rise of the Italian far right afterwards. Well, the result for Giorgio Meloni's Fratelli d'Italia party was certainly impressive. In the last general election in 2018, it got 4% of the vote. This time around, it got 26%, so obviously a huge increase. It was part of a right-wing coalition, which is uh, has three main parties. The other parts of that are Matteo Salvini's Lega, which got 9%, and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia, which got 8%. So overall, uh, the right-wing parties, their coalition got 44% and a large majority of seats. While the right-wing parties benefited from being in a coalition, which because of the electoral system meant they could get you know a higher percentage of seats than votes. All the other forces were very divided, including both the centre-left, which is the alliance around the, the Democrat Party, which together got about 26%, then the five-star movement, which is more eclectic and has kind of different uh, ideological influences, which lost most of its vote compared to 2018, uh, and got 15%. And then some centrist parties together got 8%. So the overall picture is very fragmented, but the right-wing bloc was was very strong. I think, you know, looking at the most immediate causes of that, one of the things definitely is that while in the last uh, year and a half, Italy has had a national unity government headed by a career sort of central banker, uh, Mario Draghi, which included most of the political forces in parliament, Fratelli d'Italia was the only major party not in the government. So that really helped it to you know, stand as the opposition, to present itself as the alternative. 
But then at the same time, while it's easy to imagine, oh, like the rising force often described as, you know, like populist and so on, that it's able to mobilize this kind of outsiderishness. At the same time, most of the votes that went to Fratelli d'Italia, most of its new supporters actually came from the other right wing parties. So the overall vote for the right wing parties, 44%, 12 million votes, wasn't actually particularly uh, impressive in historical perspective. And a lot of its victory owed to the the collapse of the other forces, particularly, I mean, in this election, there was only 64% turnout, which mightn't sound that low. But for Italy, it is. Uh, In the 70s and 80s, they regularly had around 90% turnout. But now we're seeing basically uh, young people, southerners and working class Italians are voting ever less. And that's really uh, hurting the parties that the kind of pass for the uh, left in the Italian uh, system. And what do you think explains that decline in turnout? Is it just that, you know, a lot of people, particularly young people, maybe think the main parties don't represent them? Are they undertaking kind of other forms of political action? What's behind that big decline? Well, I think the uh, the single biggest factor in the in the decline was the collapse of the five star movement. In fact, it's quite common in Italian elections for very low turnouts to be uh, predicted, but sometimes the actual turnout is kind of higher than expected. Uh, but this, you know, this was almost a ten percent fall on the twenty eighteen election, and the main reason was yeah, five star voters uh, from last time uh, didn't turn out this time. That's a very eclectic party, which you know in the twenty tens emerged, sort of promising to uh, get rid of all the old parties. Uh, it claimed to be neither left nor right, promised direct democracy, promised never to enter coalitions and this kind of thing. Uh, but then actually over the last four years, when it was the biggest party in parliament, it allied first with the uh, far right anti-immigrant Lega, then it allied with the sort of liberal Europeanist Democrats. Then it joined with the Lega and the Democrats and Berlusconi's Forza Italia party in Draghi's government. So. Along the way, it kind of alienated supporters on all sides and had various internal splits and crises. And actually in polling earlier in summer, it was only on around 8 or 9% support. So actually in the end, what was kind of strange was that it actually had quite a good uh, campaign, the Five Star Movement, especially in terms of advertising its social policies, its defense of uh, the unemployment benefits it introduced in 2019 uh, in fighting for a minimum wage. So it kind of pushed up its support to around 15%. So both you know, better than polling, but much less than the 32% it got in, uh, in 2018. And we particularly saw it strengthen itself as a party in uh, southern regions and southern constituencies with, with high unemployment. And, um, but yeah, I mean, overall, like, you know, about, about a third of people who voted for Five Star in 2018 just didn't vote this time. So I think there's a kind of long-term decline, but there was also a specific uh, reason this time, which was very driven by that party. Another another part of it, which might sound trivial, but probably counter a couple of percent, was there was actually very severe flooding uh, in on election day in uh, in southern Italy. So in precisely the regions where um, uh, Five Star is strong, uh, that probably had some effect uh, in depressing turnout because you literally couldn't go outside in uh, in some uh, in some areas. We've seen since the election a lot of kind of, you know, um, classic 
less so from liberals, more so from people on the right reaction, which is to say, oh, we, we can't call Georgia Maloney a fascist because, you know, it's a, it's exaggeration, it's hyperbole. And obviously, you know, this is something that people on the left occasionally do fall into, is calling people fascists when they're not fascists. Why is it right to call Maloney a fascist? Well, I, I think that, you know, w- with a lot of the other international cases we've seen recently, like, you know, Trump or Le Pen or Modi or Bolsonaro or whoever, the discussion over whether they're fascist often gets bogged down in this kind of question of whether they really correspond to the kind of political forms of the 1930s, right? Because of, of course, although like say, you know, Donald Trump, like, you know, some of his supporters are violent and, you know, he uses polarizing and nationalist identitarian rhetoric at the same time, it clearly doesn't quite uh, fit with, with the historical examples because, because the movement isn't mainly premised on like the cult of violence. There's not a kind of communist revolutionary threat that it's mobilizing against, Broadly, it at least claims to respect sort of democratic forms, even if it doesn't in practice or whatever. Um, but I think what's interesting with the Italian case is that there actually is a kind of institutional continuity. There is a direct genealogy of Milani's party from historical fascism. Fratelli d'Italia claims the legacy of the Movimento Sociale Italiano, uh, MSI, uh, which was the party created in late 1946 uh, by the kind of defeated sort of surviving cadres of the of the historical Mussolini regime and indeed more specifically of the uh, Nazi collaborationist uh, Solo Republic of 1943 to 5 so i think you know it, it is true that over time that party has changed in certain ways uh, it, it you know even in the post war decades it ran in elections uh, some of its members certainly were involved in political violence and even terrorist attacks. But over time, it's become a party that basically broadly accepts a mainly sort of electoral means of political action. And in general, the sort of violence in society is is lower and so on. And yet at the same time, it's also a party that draws on uh, some fascist thinkers and reference points, explicitly praises some sort of regime era fascists, remains a party kind of obsessed with reversing the historical judgment on World War II uh, in the sense of painting fascists as victims as well as perpetrators of atrocities. It's like particularly obsessed with claiming that Yugoslav partisans did ethnic cleansing against Italians. I qualify the idea, though, that like, I think it's um, analytically, I, I, I think, uh, the the correct definition is, is of the party is post-fascist in the sense that it draws on some fascist ideas it remains bound to the fascist past uh, but it also integrates that into a kind of broader conservative frame mm-hmm. um and in that sense you know it's it's it, we we see a kind of convergence between like a party like fratelli d'italia and then parties like the u.s republicans uh, not just because fratelli d'italia is moderating or becoming mainstream but rather because the mainstream itself is radicalizing and being more like permeated by specifically fascist groups and also by like conspiracy theorists by becoming more polarized around uh, sort of nationalist identity politics ideas of like civilizational decline and so on so so i think you know there's the historian Roger Griffin has a very interesting idea in an article from the 1990s, uh, actually about an earlier stage in the development of this party, 
uh, where he spoke of constitutional fascism. So it has a kind of formal respect for constitutional process. It has a kind of reformist way of doing politics, if you like, but it puts fascist ideas within that. And often it's a, a very contradictory mix. So I think a good example would be the way Fratelli d'Italia talks about racism. It calls itself non-racist and, and sort of formally condemns racism and anti-Semitism. Yet at the same time, it would say things like the low birth rates and high amount of immigration are causing the ethnic distortion of our people. It accuses like George Soros or speculators in general of like a, a deliberate plan for the ethnic substitution of, of white Italians by Africans and Muslims. So it kind of brings together ideas from an obviously liberal tradition like human rights, also anti-racism, but then combines that with basically fascist ideas of a kind of homogenous national community that needs to be defended. And I think also an interesting thing about the political makeup of the of the party is that its specifically fascist element is partly drawn from its origin and the figures it celebrates, including like post-war neo-fascists who were explicitly fascist, like Giorgio Amarante, who was the founder of the one of the founders of the MSI in nineteen forty six. But then it also draws on ideas like uh, Great Replacement Theory, which are not from the uh, Mussolinian tradition, but which themselves express a fascist worldview, like the 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 combination of of Marxist and radical left and financial capitalist forces which aim to uproot and destroy uh, Western Western civilization. So I, I think it's not hyperbolic to connect Milani to fascism, but it's also important to recognize that there's changes compared to the past, also because, you know, Milani is someone who became political in the 1990s, kind of after the end of the Cold War, after Italy's been in the Western institutions for 70 years at a time when political violence is less and so on. So even though there's a sort of genealogy and a continuity of the fascist tradition, it also goes through uh, uh, important changes. Some of the things that you've mentioned there bring together some really fascinating trends that we're seeing all around the world with fascism. Um, so firstly, obviously, as you mentioned, this kind of politics of victimhood. So taking the kind of, you know, liberal identity politics thing and flipping it on its head, saying, you know, it's actually affirmative action that's marginalising white men or whatever. Plus, basically what I can only think of to describe as kind of, kind of necropolitics. And you mentioned this in one of your pieces, a quote um, from Maloney, if this is to end in fire, then we should all burn together. And you see this similarly with uh, people like Le Pen accepting the idea of, of climate breakdown and then just saying we need to build bigger walls around Europe. Where, What kind of social roots does this combination of victimhood and necropolitics have? And do you think that this is going to become more powerful as we move into what looks to be several decades of quite deep and profound crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting in the fascist tradition and neo-fascist tradition on which Milani's party draws is there's a certain shift away from talking about sort of fascist ideas of the celebration of military prowess, violence as a value unto itself and war as a virtue unto itself with this cult of victimhood. I mean, the Fratelli d'Italia as a party, it doesn't celebrate the history of the Mussolini regime. It talks about it in an indulgent and qualified way but it doesn't like celebrate the idea of like imperial expansion, building the new Roman Empire, and this kind of thing. What it does is it presents World War II history in a way that 
that treats its own side as the victims. So they have this enormous obsession with the supposed ethnic cleansing of Italians by Yugoslav partisans, by communists. And they connect that very explicitly to the supposed ethnic substitution in the present. Basically, back in World War II, Italians were uh, uprooted from their homes in the borderlands and uh, with Yugoslavia. And now uh, Italians aren't being allowed to have a country of their own. They're being denied their identity. Uh, a lot of people have shared this um, this video, uh, which which came out with with subtitles recently uh, from a couple of years ago of of Milani sort of saying, "Well, you know, the kind of international capital social networks and so on are trying to like destroy everything that sort of binds you to to place and home and tradition to make you into a kind of formless mass of objects of capital of consumers and so on." Because it's not just a politics of civilizational decline in the sense of a kind of Oswald Spengler kind of idea of, you know, the aging of a civilization. Uh, it's, a, it's a conspiracy theorist idea in which the organic national community is deliberately destroyed. So I think what's interesting there is it it offers a kind of um, a victim status and a rallying point and maybe in a world in which anti-racism and in which non-European countries are, are sort of gaining prominence, it allows a kind of narrative of reverse uh, racism. Uh, we are the victims. We're the only ones who aren't allowed to have our own culture and traditions and so on. But then for that to be combined with a kind of economic policy prospectus or with a attitude towards Italy's international allies, which in a way is quite conventionally kind of free marketeer, low taxes and so on. In fact, one of the other victim groups identified by Fratelli d'Italia is small businesses uh, who they often claim are the sort of victims of, you know, they use the language of the state, which is waging war on, on business and, and so on. So I think it uses very harsh and dramatized language in order to claim that basically the white Christian family, the small business owner and so on, are being destroyed by overmighty progressives. And very much we see the kind of uh, historic narrative typical of sort of Eastern European far-right parties talking about like the the history of the Soviet Union and the supposed like communist presence in their societies today. We see that kind of imported into Italy as if it was itself sort of breaking out of this kind of decades-long uh, hegemony or dominance of of the left. So I think that's a, a kind of important mobilizing resource for right-wing politics, particularly as, as I said earlier, Fratelli d'Italia, you know, a lot of its electoral competition is actually with its own right-wing allies. So it's, you know, trying to win over their their voters with a sort of arms race of, 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 of rhetoric on these kind of arguments. But at the same time, it also responds to a kind of um, a sense of social decline which has existed in Italy for some decades. You know, Italy's a country that has had three decades of basically stagnant GDP numbers, no economic growth, uh, endless projects to kickstart the economy which have failed, ever-rising public debt, falling wages, growing um, youth emigration, and indeed emigration of people who aren't so young, 
Um, so I think there's a, a sort of buildup of a sense of decline. And that's, of course, a climate in which this kind of resentful nationalism is, is able to, uh, to gain strength and indeed become the, the, the sort of hegemonic uh, force within the right wing bloc. That strikes me as a really important point and also one that we can link back, presumably, to the Eurozone crisis and the way in which the Italian economy was kind of decimated during and after that point. Has that become a part of the mythology um, that the far right is using to explain the way in which, you know, the kind of global elite is organising within the halls of power to subjugate the Italian nation? Um, And what do you think the likely response from Europe is going to be to this um, to this government? One of the interesting things in Fratelli d'Italia is it, it's trying to integrate sort of into its ranks figures who don't come from the neo-fascist tradition. Almost all of its leaders do come from the MSI, uh, the, the post-war neo-fascist party, including Milani herself. And one of the new ones they've sort of trailed is uh, Giulio Tremonti, who was the finance minister in Berlusconi's final government, uh, which ended in 2011. And that government was basically brought down under the pressure of the sovereign debt crisis, plus the pressure from the European Central Bank uh, at the time. So um, he gave a speech at their um, the conference they held at the end of April for business in Milan. And his speech was very much kind of announcing the end of globalization, saying it had failed. He expressed a certain kind of bitterness towards Mario Draghi's role in, in the downfall of Berlusconi's final government. And, yeah, sort of announced this kind of return to a more like national capitalism. But I think there's a a big contradiction there, because it's not as if Fratelli d'Italia seeks to take Italy out of the Eurozone, or to force some sort of confrontation with Brussels. In fact, I think it would be very difficult for it to do so, given the position Italy is currently in, in terms of its public debt. So instead, the the form that this kind of national capitalism takes is firstly a sort of war on domestic progressives, and secondly, tax cuts for businesses. Uh, In fact, like, although it's often portrayed as a kind of welfare chauvinist party, like a party that, that gives benefits to nationals as against migrants, Fratelli d'Italia really is a, a sort of dogmatically free marketeer party that also um, supports like a strong state which will like model a national capitalism. So, which is so actually just like the way that neoliberalism works most places—a combination of you know the free economy and the strong state, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah. So, I mean, it it advocates things like um, you know, for example, like when Fratelli d'Italia talk about environmental issues, they say, well, you know, we're importing electric cars from China but China is the world's worst polluter. So therefore, the way to pursue a real um, ecological policy would be uh, tax cuts for the Italian auto industry, as in petrol cars, to try and revive it. Uh, or for instance, like it, it supports getting rid of unemployment benefits in favour of uh, tax breaks for companies who hire staff. So I think that you know, Italian, if we look also at, you know, Fratelli d'Italia has done particularly well in this election in uh, northern regions, which might once have been very much dominated by by the Lega, by the party of Matteo Salvini. And one of the interesting things about its uh, kind of offer to businesses there, I think, is that while through its Euro membership, 
basically like Italian exporters, particularly let's say in northeastern Italy, they're kind of both sort of bound to uh, like say supply chains of like German industrial giants, but are also suffering the effects of having like a, a strong currency. The you know the euro. Italy can't can no longer sort of just like devalue its currency to make its exporters more competitive. So instead, the way in which to ease pressure on businesses is precisely this kind of stuff like, oh, like stripping back uh, regulation, tax exemptions, uh, this kind of stuff. So, I mean, I, I also would, would, would doubt whether that even on its own terms, uh, this is actually going to going to work or, or be... Um, possible to sort of pursue in full particularly given the current uh crisis like it, it, it would seem that kind of income support uh, more direct income support and more direct measures to keep businesses afloat would probably be necessary even despite the kind of ideological free market assumptions uh, of the party but yeah i mean I, I think like in terms of the relationship with with europe meloni has very much emphasized the idea of keeping on with the uh, investment program of, of um, the post-pandemic investment program already piloted by Mario Draghi has even been kind of like showing off the idea of for the next couple of months, her government will work together with the outgoing one with Draghi personally. There's a lot of talk of her trying to um, make her economy minister a kind of top technocrat, someone like uh, Fabio Panetta from the Bank of Italy. So I think on the one hand, they will try and uh, integrate technocrats and and show certain signs of like Italy is not going to break out of its current like international position. But then in its economic priorities are actually uh, quite um, what we would recognise as, as Thatcherite. So the burning question, where is the Italian left in all this? And what, in your view, should they be doing that they're not currently doing? Well, part of the problem is that what passes for the... I mean, okay, one of the problems is, is, is the kind of dominant political terminology. In Italy, the, the alliance led by Meloni's party, or now dominated by Meloni's party, is called the centre-right even though it's dominated by by like strongly anti-immigrant, identitarian, conspiracy theorist parties. And then what passes for the centre-left is actually kind of like uh, the Democrats, who are a liberal Europeanist party, who I think we wouldn't even be able to call social democratic, like certainly includes social democratic uh, elements, but really is the party that has, since the 1990s, spearheaded a liberalisation of the uh, Italian employment model, which has become a party which is much more supported among the wealthiest Italians rather than those on lower incomes, and a party which basically is the biggest defender of the growth model Italy's been pursuing for three decades, which has made Italy the only country in Europe where wages have have actually fallen over the, the, the whole of that period, even in absolute terms. So I think that you know that is what passes for the for the center left. Uh, at the same time, there's other forces like the uh, the five star movement, which I mentioned earlier, which is very eclectic, which has allied with far right in government even as recently as 2019, 2018, 2019, and which very much doesn't come from the sort of uh, 
traditions of the left doesn't see itself in that framework, but which has promoted some social policy measures like unemployment benefits, does uh, promote a minimum wage, and which is trying to like position itself in a in a in a space to the left of the Democrats at the moment. But I think really the the problem is is that it's been several decades since the sort of there was a sort of mass left party that did respond to the economic interests of working class Italians. And that over time, that's led to a a sort of historic divorce, which you can't really just kind of leap across again, uh, just by with a few uh, sort of policy proposals or something. I think it's that the problem is, is like, if we think of a Italian who's maybe in their 40s and 50s, maybe with someone who might be, say, living with their parents still, not able to move out, not able to get a reliable income, that kind of person might also really not see recent evidence that the left, the labour movement, collective action is actually really able to secure material gains for them. I think that's a very difficult context in which to build any kind of organizing because what it produces isn't resistance but in the majority of cases at least uh, a certain kind of hopelessness mm. another issue is that the uh, the electoral system itself encourages the formation of coalitions and that's been true in differing ways for the last uh, three decades and while at times there were sort of very broad center-left coalitions with everything from sort of like hawkish neoliberals or Christian Democrats to the sort of communist uh, left, because those uh, the more dominant forces have 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 failed so utterly, have so totally detached themselves from their old uh, social base. I think, yeah, I mean that that's helped produce things like a long term decline in turnout and the sense that um, it's it's sort of impossible to to implement uh, changes of course i mean if we also if we compare to um if we compare to a case like france where we could see that there is a more vibrant and real left in in fact even a, a radical left which has taken over the lead from the sort of soft neoliberalized center left i think there's important differences firstly in terms of the kind of political cadres who remain from the kind of high phase of the labor movement in the 70s or 80s and also in terms of the fact that because of the soaring public debt, because Italy has had sort of primary budget surpluses for the last 30 years, because it's had such low investment, there's a kind of, in, in the Italian com- case compared to, say, the French, there's a kind of, decl- or indeed uh, a country like Britain, I think there's a much lower sort of collective belief in the like possibility of a state action, in the sort of viability of a national government that would sort of impose a, a radical change of course, which is why instead um, all political debate tends to firstly kind of assume neoliberal principles, uh, which are indeed hard-coded into the Eurozone, and moreover to make politics a pivot much more around kind of, uh, identity issues than, than the idea of a, a kind of real change of uh, economic direction. That is a really interesting point, the idea that kind of fascism is almost inevitable or a lurch to the far right is almost inevitable when in the context of um, managed decline effectively you lose the capacity to be able to 
imagine or participate in movements that are building alternatives, inevitably you're going to end up in a situation where political parties that basically say, well, if we're all going to burn, let's make sure that we burn this particular way that we're in control of. <laughs> I feel I should add that, of course, if, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, the, the quote about, you know, if we all go into the fire together, let's all burn together. Uh, should I is from a, an Ed Sheeran song in a, in a <laughs> Hobbit movie. So, so one of the, there's two points to that. One is that um, Giorgio Meloni is obsessed with the, the works of uh, Tolkien and in her memoir very often refers to Tolkien. And she uses him as this kind of theorist of like civilizations fighting to uh, save themselves from, from disappearance. Of course, partly because Tolkien did sort of celebrate a kind of pre-modern utopia, yeah. but also because of the particular spin that her political tradition has, has always put on Tolkien. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in terms of the victimhood narrative, it's interesting as well, because like she she quotes this thing from uh, Faramir, who's a Tolkien character in The Two Towers, who says something like, oh, I don't love the the arrow or the blade or like war for its own sake but I love the people that they defend. Mm. So, I mean, it's kind of a bit like, you know, it avoids literally talking about political violence by instead having this kind of metaphorical and indeed sort of fantasy of civilizational politics. Uh, I mean, the other thing, even apart from the specific love of Tolkien, is that Maloney very often talks about her politics using sort of like a pop culture vernacular. So, so a good example is that in her memoir, there's a bit where she talks about the tradition of the MSI, the neo-fascist post-war party, uh, which had a, uh, a flame in its logo. And then the flame still appears in Fratelli d'Italia's logo now. And she introduces the ch- this chapter by quoting like a Maroon 5 lyric, <laughs> which is something like, you know, oh, these torches, I'm never going to drop them for you. Kind of... Um, <laughs> So uh, if you're listening, uh, want me to read out more Maroon 5 lyrics. Uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, like, so so, so I think there's this kind of like slightly weird and, and indeed postmodern interplay of a certain kind of ironic and pop culture register. But then, of course, the literal meaning of what she's saying is also a sort of dramatic idea of like battles over the future and, of course, is combined with a much more um, sober and serious use of like conspiracy theories claiming that the left is trying to destroy civilization. And I think part of her like rhetorical strategy is to constantly shift between these different levels, uh, allowing her a kind of plausible deniability uh, for her more outrageous claims, mm. even while also sort of whipping up her uh, base. Right. And on that note, we're going to have to end it there. I'd just like to quickly ask you to talk a little bit about your book and also what, if any ways, you see out of this pretty terrifying situation for Italy? Well, as I said, the, the book is called Mussolini's Grandchildren. Uh, it's partly literally about Mussolini's grandchildren, because some of them are still politically active, some of them in uh, Fratelli d'Italia uh, itself. But really, the idea is that the spiritual grandchildren of Mussolini, and as I say, the fact that you know when we talk about fascism, as a modern political phenomenon, I think it's very indicative of the Italian case, precisely because you can actually follow, you know, the same people, the same party over the course of the generations 
like constantly adapting itself to the new um, political situation, the new expectations of the way voters relate to politics, whether you know people think that sort of transformative political change is still possible, the changes in the in the accepted you know thresholds of of social violence and so on. So I, I think that it's a, an interesting example to kind of reflect both on kind of public memory culture, the way that Italians talk about historical fascism and so on. Uh, but it also sees the way in which people who are fascist today, and in fact, even outside of Fratelli d'Italia, even in more sort of extra parliamentary militant groups like, say, Casa Pound or Lealtà Azione, how their politics actually have changed, have adapted to the the kind of ways of doing politics and indeed the crises of the present. To give a sort of non-gloomy conclusion, I mean, I think one thing, it, it is true that the victory for a party like Fratelli d'Italia today does come in a, a, a context in which, firstly, you know, if we think, you know, it's not the restoration of a fascist regime by any chalk, it's not in any sense, you know, comparable to like a, a fascist takeover of the state. And I think even compared to examples like, say, Viktor Orban's Hungary, it's likely that the kind of civil society resistance and pressure and also the kind of constitutional resilience of the Italian state itself uh, will be stronger in the Italian one. But then I think it, the more depressing scenario is is that really the if we're talking about like the economic situation of Italy, then I think it's much harder to see how it's going to break out of crisis, how it's going to sort of end the uh, the trend towards a, a sort of long term upward distribution of wealth within a, a stagnant or even declining economy. And I think you know this is also a government that's going to be doing nothing about climate change, and which you know faced with the crises of our present, you know we know that it's going to put last. Uh, firstly, minorities, uh, sexual and ethnic minorities in Italy, and indeed women, but also people who are suffering the most in terms of you know unemployment, being on the breadline, the lowest wages, and so on. So I think you know it's it's a, a grim situation for all those reasons. It's a continuation of something we've seen already since the 1990s. So in that way, it's not a big new shock, but precisely because this has been going on for a long time. It, it makes it hard to, to point to like specific reasons to be kind of hopeful of like new and alternative or these left wing uh, projects uh, emerging in response. Yeah.